0: Welcome to Sculpture Vulture. I'm Lucy Branch, a sculptural conservator and author, bringing you a series of interviews with some amazing sculptors who inspire me and I hope will do the same for you. You can see the photographs accompanying the interview, the episode show notes and get a free novel from SculptureVulture.co.uk. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me. It's really such a great pleasure to be able to share my love of sculpture with people. And I just know that you're going to be excited by the work of the artists that I have for you today. If you've ever been to Canary Wharf in London, you will know that there is the most magnificent outdoor sculpture collection, which I'm very proud to be able to say my conservation company has the great privilege of working on. And that's where I first came across Hugh Chapman's work. Though we've never actually met in person, he and I, I feel, have become friends over many of the conversations that we've had about his work. And the more I know him, the more I can see his personality, his voice in his sculptures, and they really are incredibly unusual, and I encourage you to go and have a look at the blog post, which has lots of his pictures in it. I began our discussion today with asking my favourite question, which is if he'd always been creative.
1: Yes, I have been ever since I was a boy. I always was very interested in painting and drawing and making models and that sort of thing. I was very fortunate in the sense that my parents um, always encouraged uh, creative activities as much as academic ones, which gave me a great breadth of experience.
0: What did your parents do? Uh,
1: my mum is a retired specialist in paediatric dentistry and she's currently a visiting fellow in school of psychology at the University of Lincoln. And she also, she does a lot of research into dental phobia and sort of occupational stress to do with the treatment of patients uh, on behalf of the dentist and, and that sort of thing. So it's a pretty- Interesting pretty interesting career uh for her and my father he's uh he's just retired he was a research and development software engineer in the world of heating and control systems which is a bit more exciting and varied than it might sound i mean mum's quite creative at sewing and and that sort of thing which she was taught by her mum and my dad has painted watercolors and and that sort of thing uh for a lot of his life. And he was designing model aircraft as a as a boy and a young teenager. And uh, we, we in fact still to this day fly them together.
0: Sounds cool. Yeah,
1: yeah, it's good until you crash them. But uh, <laughs> that's a useful skill as a young boy to learn that when you do crash your model, it is possible to it back together again. But no, they were they were very good. And um, in fact, they sacrificed a great deal for me because well, I am severely dyslexic. And at school, I was Basically, uh, it was resigned to the fact that I was thick um, and they remortgaged the house to send me to private school where education in in the arts and creative subjects was was actually more prevalent anyway. So I was very fortunate to go to schools where it was understood that academic or academia wasn't everything, although I did struggle with the feeling that, you know, my brother. He's very academic as well and in my early life I struggled with the feeling of I needed to do something academic and I would have been much better off had I, at an early age, established that being a creative person was a good thing and equally as merited as being highly academic.
0: Isn't it funny, though, how we, we resist our natural inclination just because of the situation around us? I think my father was the same. I mean, he was a real genius as an artist and, and became a restorer. But the thing is that, that the art part of it, he said, saved his life because his, his dyslexia was so severe that he felt inadequate uh, compared to everyone around him who could do all sorts of things that to him were virtually impossible
1: yes i mean it's a deeply difficult position to be in particularly when you're told that your gcc english and maths um except you're not going to have a life unless you succeed well in those subjects
0: it's madness It's
1: pressure and i think that certainly in previous times people were fortunate enough when academia wasn't everything people at quite a young age i believe were recognised for their ability and taken aside and being like I think you should look at doing this which if I'd applied myself solely to my creative outpouring at an earlier age I don't know where I'd be today but I should imagine in a more advanced place than I am as I stand today
0: and so did did it change for you did you suddenly think this is it this is for me
1: it took me a long time to fully break off from the idea of academic subjects, I think it must have been in the sort of, in my early 20s that I fully realised that I had something really to offer and to put myself in a position to forget about that and move on. And, and I did that initially with photography. I, I self-taught myself photography at 13 with my grandfather's old single lens reflex camera.
0: Completely different to digital. These days, it's a whole lot. It's
1: it's a painful learning process. When you can only afford one film a month, it takes time. But it focuses the mind. I think digital is too easy.
0: No developing. No
1: developing. And you really have to be technically skilled with film because you can't see the result. And um, I fear that a lot of people aren't learning photography properly because they're just looking at the back of screens and saying, well, that's worse. But it did actually turn into be quite pivotal later on in life because I specialised in um, in printing in the darkroom, which is all about light, of course, yeah. which is I mean, absolutely crucial to my where I am today.
0: And when did you start using your hands? Well,
1: every time my parents took me to an art gallery, I would come back and I'd do a painting. And we went to St Ives on holiday when I was about 12 or 13, And we went to the Tate there, and we went to Barbara Hepworth's house. And I was just... I can remember it being like I've just walked into a whole different world.
0: That garden is fantastic.
1: It is astonishing. And the, the sculpture just belongs there. They're one and the same thing, and I was moved. And I had my sketch pad with me, and I drew sculptures the whole way home back in the car. So... How long is it back from Cornwall? Well, it depends on the state of the roads, but anywhere between some hours and a day. But I came home and I had some drawings and my dad took me to a woodyard where we went and saw this nice old guy and said, can I have a piece of oak? And he sort of pointed at this bit on the floor and said, oh, you can just have that. And so I made my own rather naive Barbara Hepworth broke two of my grandfather's chisels in the process <laughs> and the seasoned oak, which was like concrete. And I can't help but feel that uh, I was thinking about this only earlier, that maybe the experience of carving a piece of oak that's sat around for 50 years put me off because I think concrete was probably more forgiving something.
0: <laughs> and especially when, as you say, it's, it's aged to such an extent.
1: Yeah, I mean, if you tried to put a nail in it, that you're not going to manage, and the nail's just going to (laughs) bend, basically. Um, And you can see why sculptors carve green wood, because otherwise (laughs) you'd be there for eternity.
0: Barbara was probably laughing her head
1: off. (laughs) She probably is. Uh, And it's funny, because it kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier, about relinquishing things. I wish at that point I'd realised what an impact that had on me, and focused more attention on, Maybe that this is what I should be doing. Because I don't think anything has had such a bearing on my life as that visit.
0: And so when did you start creating again?
1: I started work as a commercial photographer. And I was earning quite a lot of money, but it was awful. And I thought to myself, I can't deal with this life. It's too stressful. Taking loads uh, to products, factories, yeah. um, that sort of thing. It really wore me down very quickly. And I thought to myself, I don't want this to be my life i can go on earning 500 pounds a day or whatever but it's not worth it and when i was at school much to my frustration because i wanted to be an architect so drawing was important i was forced to do ceramics because i was really good at it and i thought to myself well i'll just go back to the ceramics and got a kiln and everything like that and pug mill and everything. It didn't take me very long before I became completely frustrated with the properties of the clay. Its lack of um, s- structural strength, uh, mm-hmm. its inability to make very, very um, controlled surface, um, and a lot of the time its dullness or a lot of glaze that looks quite tacky. And it didn't take me very long, probably a year of that, before I got completely fed up with it, if less than that. And at that point, I got a welder off a friend's dad and made my first steel armature and started using concrete. And then after that, that's where I really sort of, everything fell into place. And the materials that I started using, the ability to make armatures, um, and that's when I really found my thinking and where I am today in, in the work um, that I now make.
0: What's your process now?
1: Well, 50% of my work has been made with a steel armature, which has its benefits. Obviously, you can get a great amount of structural strength with it, but it takes a very long time. One of my biggest armature had 140 metres of steel bar in it. Well, my goodness. Well, it took me two and a half months so i i I use that as a as a framework or if that I use um polyurethane foam uh these days which has its good points but i I don't really like the petrochemical yeah. side of things, but I haven't yet found a material that that is a better substructure uh and then um Yeah, I use a sort of polyurethane on top of that, yet again, which worries me, but my sculpture, the surfaces are all so fine and the lines are so fine that it really, anything else just doesn't hold them. Plaster, I gave up on years ago, it's just too soft and powdery, which, yes, I'd love for someone to come up with something that is exactly the same, has exactly the same properties, but is organic, I mean... (laughs)
0: <laughs> mm, a big ask, I think. Yes, yes. It has to suit your hands. It has to suit the the way that you are putting those ideas into that material.
1: Yes. I mean, I think one of the things that is, well, one of the most important things about sculpture is, is that it's structural mm-hmm. and that you can do things with it using the right materials that means that you can create structures that might not exist in other places like architecture or functional design because they have it has no use a lot of my work has to deal with large cantilevered weights, which obviously things like clay are, are no good for because they're very they're very heavy and their strength for the weight is almost non-existent which is why the you know having a, a, a very strong underpinning to the work is is vital before i then put the surfaces and lines on it
0: that's quite unusual way of working though
1: it is quite unusual and I think that maybe that's partially because of my unusual arrival into sculpture having had no education in it no one told me what was a way of doing things I had to find out what works for me and then also you know my life so there's a lot of a lot of things that came together through my early life of doing various things that really all add up into the knowledge that I have to do what I'm doing. I spent an enormous amount of time with... I had a Land Rover for 17 years, which was very, very special. It was a mixture, so I was permanently having to make things to go from metric to imperial and that sort of thing. So I'd learned a lot about all manner of things before I arrived.
0: Sounds to me like you're a frustrated engineer as well.
1: Uh, Yes, probably. Certainly a frustrated architect. Um,
0: Oh, well, you can do that in the next life. (laughs) Yes.
1: Yeah, well, I suppose, um, you know, had I ended up as an architect, I would probably be more frustrated than I would be not being one because I'd probably have ended up making this factory-fed bog-standard architecture that is going up all over the place.
0: Either that or maybe we would have had some of the best uh, sort of sculptural buildings that we desperately need around the world. Yes.
1: Um, Zaha Hadid is a, of a yes. hero of mine, Think she's contributed more to the world of architecture in recent years than certainly a lot of the men have. And really, uh, it's sculpture that people live in, isn't
0: it? Tell me how you would describe your sculpture.
1: Well, my sculpture is really an abstract, dynamic expression of my interpretation of the natural world. So it's never directly representational of anything but in, is a representation of thoughts based on what I see and admire within the natural world and increasingly one thing I've come to realise is that the South Downs has played a role in that in the sense that um, the South Downs has got a very beautiful architecture it's, it's uh, or typography it's very curved it's often been related to the female form. But the beauty of it is, is that the farmers have drawn lines all over it with fields. And I commonly end up going up there to find that I'll look at a field because it is has peered in a different colour because of where the crops are. And I think that looks exactly like the surface on this sculpture. So it's a sort of representation of a feeling about things. And I'm very interested at the moment in creating work that is of a very sort of lightweight, transient feeling, so more about the things that aren't seen, the air currents, the sort of drifting, transitional qualities of the natural world and the seasons and that permanent state of change. And one of the kindest things that anyone has said about my work is that you make bronze look light which I thought was about as good as compliments as as I could ever have.
0: So tell me about ideas. When do they come to
1: you? Dreams being the worst one, it's really very unhelpful because the dream, when you start to think about it, it seems to crumble away. So it's like a, a ghost of an idea, if that makes sense, in the sense that you can't actually pin it down. But I think the most annoying time as well is when you're actually... You know, when I'm working on something else, that I get an idea. Because uh, you are... When it takes you a very, very long time to realise one idea from start to finish, to act on every idea one has is, is almost impossible. And one of the problems I have as well is that when I perceive an idea commonly represented a three-dimensional model in the mind. So I can visualize it and I can sort of rotate it um, and uh, I'm able to get a very clear idea of what I'm actually thinking of uh, re- uh, realizing in the physical world. But when I draw to try and record that idea, in doing so, a bit like a dream, I break the three-dimensional model that's in my head because I'm trying to... uh, my brain is thinking in three dimensions but then is ultimately you're still trans... as much as you can make a drawing appear 3D in in a 2D way you're making it, you're putting it onto a flat surface. So the idea thing is quite frustrating because you can't keep up with time. So for every one thing that i realize i can only for that's every hundred ideas i have might well, be more than that but i can only ever achieve one of them um which is very very frustrating because
0: well the only thing is i can say is we're going to have a lot of really good sculptures by the end of your lifetime though because <laughs> at least you're I, not running I'm out very of much ideas. look
1: forward to i mean how great would it be if in some way the digital world could be more connected to one's brain and physicality. Because of course if you were using rapid prototyping or CNC machining or something like that, if you can get the idea very fluidly through the computer, you could be making ideas every day.
0: Such a great I know AI it puts a lot of people off, but I also think it's going to open up a lot of opportunities for us all yeah. to have like an assistant. If it was just your kind of ideas assistant, you're not you are obviously the creator, but still having something that can process at such speed that is beyond human capacity. It would yeah, be. that would I be mean, something I'd, incredible. We'll
1: have to see how we go, but um I I kind of suspect that maybe I may be not here when we get that far. Um <laughs>
0: <laughs> I definitely intend to be around to see my, I don't know, my... Well, you can already get a voice double. I mean, there's already quite convincing ones. So I kind of, I think AI is moving at an pretty incredible rate. I mean, I,
1: that leads to a whole... I mean, the debate over AI is...
0: Yes, it's one can of worms.
1: <laughs> it's never really befallen humanity before, I think. Um, and I know that some of the greatest minds are... Stephen Hawking, for example, is very, very, very anti AI. You know, or uh, was sorry. You know, because I think it's uh, it's it's a dangerous unknown.
0: Ah, uh, but they would have said that about the internet True. and all sorts of things. So uh, I think it's going to be a tool. I I hope that's how we'll use it. Anyway, so uh, Hugh, tell us what does it take to be a professional sculptor.
1: It's quite complicated, I think. You've got to be, uh, you have to be practical, but then it's philosophy. Firstly, stubbornness is absolute. Yeah, I mean, Tenacity. unless you're completely committed, <laughs> um, there's not much point in bothering, I would say. Ultimately, the worst thing about it is, if you've got a problem, it's a problem that only you can solve. And that's a very lonely place to be, you know, because it's not like, oh, I, you know, I sometimes I can ask people, like, if I'm struggling with things, how, what they might think, but quite commonly, as much as that's helpful, it can be detrimental because they don't fully understand the complexity of everything. So you can look at something in an ideal and say, well, I don't like that, how that is, but that might be like that because of everything else. And that can be, you know, a bit like what I was talking about, dreaming. When, you're, when you've got a problem, you know, working through it on your own is challenging. And some of the decisions that one has to make um, are irreversible, which is tough. Because uh, let's say I decide that I'm going to, well, I might decide to cut something off. That's something that I may cut off. I may have spent months working on, but I can't be absolutely sure that cutting it off is the right thing to do until I've done it um, so there's a sort of anxiety there so I think a, a, an ability to deal with a fairly heavy mental load is pretty important because ultimately being a sculptor I think is a lot of problem thing but a sense of sort of philosophy as well I speak about him earlier but I'd like to think that my grandfather, Uh, could see what I'm doing he used to call me his little philosopher and it's a shame because he was an amazing artist and he was never able to fully apply himself um, because um, of his job teaching and his wife wasn't particularly keen on it and I think sometimes it's a struggle to become a sculptor if there's too much around you I'm quite fortunate in the sense that I've been able to dedicate myself to sculpture almost entirely for over 10 years now I could, as we were talking about earlier, I mean, honestly, the support of my parents has been crucial because it's been, you know, as I sit here today, I've become, my work is not a job, it's an existence, and I think part of me battled that for quite a long time, but I've come to fully accept that now, and, you know, in fact, I've, I've, you know, I'm perfectly um, able to admit it that I've received psychological Uh, help over the past couple of years and that's helped me tremendously because I think uh, as a creative you're so prone to self-criticism and naturally the, you know, if Beethoven had written a symphony and he was like, oh well that's it that's that's marvellous if that wasn't that thing in his head that sort of said, well I'm not sure about that, I need to write another one the, the, the self criticism can be uh, beneficial, but it's learning to understand um, to what degree one listens to, to that. But, but naturally dealing with that is quite a challenging thing.
0: Yeah, there's always like a saboteur, isn't there, in our head. There's always saying, it's not good enough, no matter what you've done. I mean, the amount uh, my struggle I always find is that I want to change everything. So I've, you know, finished a book, it's done. And then I, I in my head, I'm still thinking, oh, maybe I should have given that a different ending. Yeah. Or maybe I should have you know, tweaked this character or that. But the problem is that, you know, at some point you've got to leave it alone and move on to the next thing. And even that can be the next, that can be to a situation, like a relationship with a person, or I might have to, you know, get on and deal with my children or something. But it's really hard to deny that part of your brain that's dragging you back there to that thing that in its own little funny dimension isn't perfect.
1: Yeah, one of the things, I don't know how you find it, with the things that at the time that you don't like about something, but one of the funny things I find is that the things that I'm commonly most critical of, once that thought's kind of gone, like, oh, well, that's not very good, and um, you look at it with fresh eyes some time down the path, I commonly find the things that I'm, at the time of making, quite unhappy with. Um, Once that negativity is gone, and you look at it with a different pair of eyes, I actually find it quite... they're they're commonly the most interesting parts. And I I don't know quite how that works out, but there's some cruel irony in it.
0: (laughs) Has there been a piece of work that you've done where you've stood back and thought, do you know what, if I never make another sculpture in my life, I've done it?
1: Well, certainly the growth form at Canary Wharf is a huge honour to be in that collection of work and to have it positioned where it is, uh, particularly in my very early stages uh, of working as a sculptor, to have that there is an incredible thing.
0: It is an incredible sculpture. It's one of these pieces that every time I I go there, it just says something different in a different light. And because of all the beautiful planting they've got around there as well, I think they just, it it changes every day. I
1: I always think about it, it, the sculpture and the location, are both amplified so much by that, by their mutual engagement. And so that sculpture was on loan for a few years before Canary Wharf actually bought it. And um, I was told the reason why they, they actually bought it was because, because of the public response to it.
0: If you could have a shout out now to someone who's commissioning, is there a place you'd like to see one of your sculptures?
1: I've I, I struggle to think about answering this because I'm so far away from where I'd like to be in a lot of ways. I I have such a desire to make n- n- genuinely monumental sculpture um, that is able to engage with enormous spaces. I guess an example for that would be Anish Kapoor's Cloud Gate or uh, Gormley's Angel of North. But obviously, very few people ever ever get there. But it's a I suppose in a way it's a sort of social idea, in, in the sense that it can benefit the public, everyone, whether you have any interest in art, whether you've never been to an art gallery at all, you know, whether you're looking out of your flat window, for example, that sort of thing. Yeah. Sort of, um, I would be really honoured one day to have an exhibition at the Yorkshire Sculpture Park. That place is, I think, one of the best places in the world to see sculpture the you know the landscape
0: i completely agree yeah
1: um i went to see a tony craig exhibition there and it was just mind-blowing that was the most recent one but that would be a great honour and then um for me one thing i'm very interested in is my work being installed in a stranger in, in a cathedral
0: are you religious i'm not
1: i'm an atheist but i think that beauty as is, is is integral to religion
0: the amazing art that has come out of faith, all sorts of faiths. Absolutely, and the
1: music as well. Yeah. Uh, It's been the breeding ground for almost all of our culture today, when you think about it. And I don't think that something needs to be a religious icon or a direct representation of something to mean something spiritually. One of the greatest moments for me in my life i think was when my mum showed her, one of her friends who's a a nun my word and she broke down in tears that for me is probably more important than any it's the reaction
0: i think i know exactly what you mean art it it is a spiritual thing even if you take god out of the equation which is a bizarre thing to think of that's precisely why because it speaks so deeply to you and and to the kind of the core of us absolutely
1: i mean if i may quote the uh, give me if the quote's not accurate but the late roger Scruton, philosopher he said um in beauty we find both amplification of our joys and consolation for our sorrows
0: that's a great uh, quote which
1: is what i live my life by i genuinely hope that my sculpture can have a positive psychological effect.
0: Hugh, just tell everyone where they can find out more about you.
1: So you can visit my website, which is um, www.hughman.co.uk, uh, or my Instagram, which is at human Studio, which is one word. Yeah, those are the two best places, really.
0: And do you, do you look quite like Instagram? Do you spend a bit of time on there so uh, fans can talk
1: to you? Uh, I was terrified social media because of people portraying their lives as perfect on Facebook and so on. But when I joined Instagram, the response to my work was amazing. And I feel like I've joined a little community of like-minded people. And it's great to see...
0: You, you found your tribe. Yeah,
1: yeah. It's really great to see, you know, I, I work at home alone alone. In a world where I'm isolated from anyone like me on the whole, other than you know a few people that I'm fortunate to know, and you know just seeing other people doing their thing is is, is a great joy. And um,
0: great. Well, thank you very much, you, for the time you spent with us today, and I hope to speak to you again thanks soon. Thanks very much, Lacey I studied history of art as half of my undergraduate degree and so I'm more than aware of the concept of the myth of the artist. But I think that Hugh Chapman might be precisely the kind of character that that myth was based on, the solitary creative genius. So much of what we discussed today resonated with me, how we often put great value on what our weaknesses are rather than our strengths and of how vital the support he's had from his family has been. Without their role, it's highly unlikely that Hugh would have been able to have his career at all. And it does often take someone else's belief in us to really ignite our own confidence. And that's certainly been my experience with writing. I wrote my first novel and then left it in a drawer, years and years i mean back in the day when you used to print things out and leave them in drawers obviously that's not the case anymore but that tells you how long ago it was and it was my dad's prompting which made me be brave enough or i should say nagging rather than prompting (laughs) to peek at it again and just to look whether there actually was anything of real merit there and finally how we have to have the space in our lives to create, and that usually has to come at some great sacrifice. I certainly struggle to find the time to write, and so when the idea of a book just gets too strong for me and I can't manage to keep it in any longer, I have to make the very conscious decision to make a really busy life. I have three kids, a business, a very long-suffering husband, I have to make the very conscious decision to make an incredibly busy life even busier and I have to wake up about quarter past four to enable myself to be enough compass to actually start writing. So I usually start about half past four in the morning and I give myself a good hour and a half writing before I have to start the rest of my day. So usually by the end of a novel for me nobody's talking to me because uh, I'm so distracted there's hardly any point in asking me a question and I'm also ridiculously tired I end up going to bed earlier than my 10 year old and even the dog doesn't want to know he hasn't been walked for ages my poor husband's had to do all of that and so these creations they take an enormous sacrifice Um, but the project wouldn't happen without them and I think that's a different sacrifice for everybody's individual situation. I really hope that one day we get to see one of those mega-sized creations that Hugh Chapman visualises during one of his dreams. But I think he's definitely a rising star and a space to watch. So the next interview coming up is with Paul Day on the 1st of December who so many people will know if they've ever travelled into St Pancras Station in London, he was commissioned to create that colossal bronze standing at the end of the platforms called The Meeting Place, which, he tells me, has been a very controversial sculpture, though for me, who is a romantic soul, it's just perfection itself in bronze. His ability to tell stories through friezes in particular make his work endlessly interesting and I really encourage you to join me. He's a really fantastic character. If you're looking for a new book, please consider one of my novels about the dark side of the art world, where sculpture is always at the heart of the story. You can get them on the show website, on the usual online retailers, or even better, keep your local library alive, ask for them in there. Thank you for joining me today. Sculpture Vulture has been brought to you by Antique Bonds.